Do I hold the microphone here to make it sound clear? Or not? Yes. Maybe. Let's find out. Hello, and welcome to the American Empire Podcast, Episode 1, Islands and Mainlands. There is a rhyme that many Americans and Americanophiles, such as myself, would know. It goes like this. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. He had three ships and left from Spain. He sailed through sunshine, wind, and rain. He sailed by night, he sailed by day, he used the stars to find his way. A compass also helped him know how to find the way to go. Ninety sailors were on board, some men worked while others snored, and others watched the ocean deep. Day after day they looked for land, they dreamed of trees, rocks, and sand. October 12th their dream came true, you never saw a happier crew. Indians, Indians, Columbus cried. His heart was filled with joyful pride. But India, the land was not. It was the Bahamas, and it was hot. The Arakan natives were very nice. They gave the sailors food and spice. Columbus sailed to find some gold to bring back home, as he had been told. He made the trip again and again, trading gold to bring back to Spain. First American? Mm, Not quite. But Columbus was brave, and he was bright. Well, not quite. This oversimplification of Columbus's journey reveals a facet of the American character, the obsession of the entrepreneurial individual. As a prelude to the U.S. narrative, Columbus's story and the consolidation of power over Hispaniola introduces us to key ideas which will become more and more significant in the future American empire. In the late 15th century, merchants and bankers were becoming increasingly important to the ever-evolving European landscape. Italian bankers helped facilitate the growth of the merchant adventurer and helped establish vast trade routes across the seas. The Iberian nations of Spain and Portugal were ideally placed to establish colonial empires. Old Mediterranean merchants advised the Burging Iberian sailors to, quote, go west. The Portuguese commissioned eight such ventures into the Atlantic. One such commission was assigned to Ferdinand van Ullman in 1487, tasking him to find islands and mainlands. That commission failed to yield the European discovery of the Americas. Yet, with that said, one caveat must be pointed out. The Vikings had already landed in Newfoundland, Northeast America. The Iberian nations were eager to explore the Atlantic in search of lands to grow cash crops and in pursuit of legendary forgotten continents where the rivers ran with gold. A Portuguese prince known as Dom Enrique, also known by the rather dubious name Henry the Navigator, was the third son of King John I of Portugal. He is considered the founder of the Age of Exploration. Conflicts with the African Moors early in his life sparked an interest in Enrique. He wondered the true potential Africa had to offer him. 
the addendum to his name is misleading. Rather than being a navigator himself, he was a patron of exploration. He also attempted to capture the Canary Islands of the Spanish, but having failed, his attention moved elsewhere. He ordered his crew to sail south, down the West African coast, to the Kingdom of the Congo. The Portuguese merchants had already begun to trade with those who lived on the West African coast, but Enrique did not seek trade, rather he sought slaves. Indeed, demand for labour to work cash crops increased. Indentured servants worked in the short term, but once freed, they could be potential troublemakers. This pattern of social relations repeated itself in the Americas. British colonial governments increasingly opted for slave labour instead of utilising servant labour or convict labour. By the end of Enrique's life, Portugal had established the African slave trade, and along with that, a great mythos around his life. One of Enrique's captains just so happened to be Christopher Columbus's father-in-law. Time now, I guess, to introduce Columbus. The son of a Genoese weaver in Italy, he was enthralled by tales of chivalry and adventure. His wife and partner surely did not help in this regard. His tenuous connection to Henry the Navigator informed his own ambitions. He wrote of his desires, quote, I should be entitled to call myself Don, and should be High Admiral of the Ocean Sea, and Viceroy and Governor in perpetuity of all the islands and mainlands I might discover and gain, or that my eldest son should succeed me, and his heirs thenceforth, from generation to generation, forever and ever. End quote. But his ambition bordered on fantasy. Yes, the crowns of Castile and Aragon, otherwise known as the kingdoms of Spain, would grant him such a title. But they came to regret it. Columbus was your prototypical Don Quixote type, often retreating into religious imaginations too, believing that his journey westward was going to be a mission from God. Or did he believe that? His motives often changed when he pitched his ideas to cross the Atlantic. In search of patrons, he would suggest that he would find a faster route to China and to convert a great mass of heathens. It was either commercial or a mission from God. Columbus's information, though, was inaccurate. So inaccurate that he often used India and China interchangeably. A combination of these pictures won him the patronage of the Spanish monarchs, Isabella and Ferdinand. They were fervent Catholics and also newly minted powers in the region. Their reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula made them promising patrons. Informing Isabella and Ferdinand's decision was their fear that Portugal was getting ahead in the establishment of vast trade routes to India since they had already made inroads down the West African coast. And so, Columbus, perhaps, playing off their fears, gained their support. His final commission was to establish a trade route to China and find islands and mainlands. This journey westward was to be financed by the crowns of Spain and Italian bankers. 
If Columbus was correct, then they could establish a colony closer to the Chinese ports and gain the riches that Marco Polo spoke of. Three ships were granted for the expedition, whereupon Columbus insisted on being called Admiral, even though he had no such title bestowed upon him. Martin Alonso Pinzon was to be his co-commander for the journey. Columbus was skeptical of him throughout the process. The three ships set sail from the Canary Islands on the 6th of September, 1492. Accounts of Columbus paint him as an outlandish buffoon, working with poor information and newfangled navigational gadgets. The journey itself did not get off to a good start. Land was always on the horizon, but would vanish like a ghost as they approached it. Hopes were raised and then dashed, repeatedly. Some agitating crew members thought Columbus a crazy, quote, foreigner who was ready to die in the hopes of making himself a great lord, end quote. Indeed, they were correct. Columbus was also skeptical of his crew. He was prone to paranoia and he would often isolate himself. Yet he was an outsider, a Genoese maverick on board with a crew of sailors from the Iberian Peninsula. It is understandable. All of them shared the same goal, to gain wealth and acclaim for finding a new land for Isabella and Ferdinand. There was an aura of prestige that came with the Spanish crown. For some time, there was a sense of Christendom on the decline. To the east, the old Roman Empire, now remembered as the Byzantine Empire, fell to the Ottomans in 1453, and for most of the medieval era, large parts of the Iberian Peninsula was occupied by the Islamic Moors. Isabella and Ferdinand seemed to have reversed the fortunes of Christendom, so to speak, whereas the crowns of Europe were often fighting one another. England, for example, was busy fighting their neighbours to the south, the French. If you note these dates, you'll see why the English were not involved in the early phases of exploration. The French and the English fought each other for 114 years in a war better known as the Hundred Years' War, 1337 to 1453. Then a civil war followed, known as the War of the Roses, 1455 to 1485. Then after all that fighting for 30 years, Henry VII came out on top, and his son was to follow, Henry VIII. Yes, the king who had six wives and formed the Church of England. The latter action resulting in more violent infighting and expropriation of church land. This was not the end of the religious issue, and I will return to it, but a semblance of stability arrived after the death of Henry's first son, Edward, and first daughter, Mary. With their passing, Queen Elizabeth I ushered in the Golden Age of England. Isabella and Ferdinand's Catholic zeal is sharply contrasted with the religious machinations of England. In their reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula, Pope Alexander bestowed to them the title of Catholic Monarchs. It was a troubling title, though, the papacy was divided early in the 15th century, with two popes competing for legitimacy, which, in turn, laid the groundwork for the future Reformation. It demonstrated that the church was not all-powerful. Once the schism was resolved, though, 
there was an active effort by the church to re-establish the authority under the Pope of Rome. Pope Alexander did not help the papacy in their cause. He was a Spaniard nobleman in a clergy filled with Italian lords. To protect himself, he elevated his family into positions of authority. Controversially, these family members were his children. By openly flaunting his broken vow of celibacy, he projected an image of the Catholic Church in moral decline. The title Catholic Monarch symbolized, for some, the corruption of the Church. A Spanish Pope elevating the status of Spanish monarchs. In the short term, the political and religious unrest led exclusively to wars in Italy where city-states vied for dominance and where France threw their weight around. The Spanish crown was elevated whilst the English crown was increasingly alienated from the papacy. In the long term, it helped trigger the Reformation which served the functions of the developing state apparatus and its widening bureaucratic and fiscal needs. By eliminating the church, revenue could be collected to pay for a standing army and to conduct a prolonged war, instead of having funds siphoned off to the clergy. This development is important, and will be discussed in later episodes. This religious polarization and upheaval did not help Columbus's mental state. He was becoming increasingly erratic and paranoid, in a way understandably so. He sold a grand vision to very powerful monarchs. The stakes were very high. On the 10th of October, fear of mutiny was mounting. They had been at sea for over a month. Martin Alonso demanded that the ships change course. Columbus, however, insisted that they were sailing in between islands and surely, soon, that they would find the mainland. In his diary, he wrote, the man could not endure any more. On the 12th of October, Columbus's neck was saved. They found land. More accurately, Martin Alonso's crew found land, but Columbus, ever the gracious man, took all the credit. Upon seeing the native inhabitants of the island they landed on, Columbus called them Indians a name which stuck. In fact, they had not landed near India nor China, or even the Americas. Rather, they landed on the Bahamas and encountered the Arawak Tainos. It was a culture shock for both parties. Columbus's crew was generally prudish, highly religious, and the Tainos easily offended their Christian sensibilities. The Taino Indians wore little clothing, They had rudimentary tools, but had developed sophisticated agricultural methods, growing yams, corn, and cassava, a sort of root vegetable. They had mastered their land, living in communes, but to their detriment they had no comparable steel or gunpowder which the Europeans had brought with them. Columbus was less offended by their appearance, but he clearly thought them inferior believing that his Christianity and notions of natural philosophy made him superior. He reported, quote, I think they can easily be made Christians. They ought to make good and skilled servants, for they repeat very quickly whatever we say to them, End quote. But again, 
His religiosity and love for adventure narratives blinded his understanding of who the Taino Indians were. He vacillated between imagining them as perfect beings who were inherently good, untouched by war and the corruption of civilization, to assertively trying to ascertain whether they mined any precious metals such as gold or silver. He wrote, As soon as I arrived in the Indies, on the first island which I found, I took some of the natives by force in order that they might learn and might give me information of whatever there is in these parts. End quote. It soon became obvious that gold would be hard to come by. After kidnapping some Tainos for guides, Columbus and his crew sailed to Cuba, which he believed to be Japan. Again, they were frustrated. No gold, no silver. And the locals did not have much that could be found already in European markets. Columbus's dual motive morphed into his one. He was to become a preacher for the word of Christ, to evangelize instead of establishing a trade route. Vincente Inez Pinzon, the captain of the third ship, and the brother of Martin Alonso, sailed ahead and lost contact with Columbus and Martin Alonso. The co-commanders were temporarily stuck. They could not catch the wind out of Cuba. After a while, Columbus's paranoia became very obvious. He was convinced that Vincente had betrayed him. However, his mood was about to change. Once they sailed off Cuba, they were guided to Hispaniola, where there was gold in the rivers, and a community on the island that they believed they could trade with. At last, in Columbus's view, he had achieved his mission, and perhaps he would become High Admiral of the Ocean Sea and Viceroy and Governor in perpetuity. His advice to Isabella and Ferdinand was, quote, It only remains to establish a Spanish presence and order them, the Taino Indians, to perform your will, for they are yours to command. Indeed, Columbus would establish a toehold in Hispaniola, building a small fort called Navidad, and he would return to Spain with triumphant tales. Co-commander Martin Alonso died on the journey back, and so Columbus would bask in the fame alone. Instead of celebrating Columbus and Martin Alonso Day, the journey is remembered solely by just one man. Columbus returned to the Americas in 1493, this time with the purpose of establishing a permanent colony. As we know, more and more Europeans would return to the Americas, bringing with them guns, steel, and disease. Next week, we'll find out how the process of colonization plays out in Hispaniola, and how these similar patterns will repeat in the establishment of Jamestown and Plymouth. <laughs> <laughs>